All right, well, without further ado, we're going to start with Mr. Samuel Vincent, and so please welcome him up. All right, now I remember a time when I started my very first job at Pack and Save, and my role was to scan in all of the frozen food that the truck would deliver at the back of the store. And one day they had a man down in the fruit and veggie department, and they desperately needed someone to come and save the day. Thankfully, I was just around the corner. Like, I've scanned ice cream, surely I can scan a lettuce, like it's not that hard. And so I scan in the fruit and veggie like I normally would, but turns out there is a completely different system to it. And so later on that day, my manager calls me in and I walk in high and mighty thinking, I'm about to get a raise, let's go. And he goes, Samuel, did you scan in the fruit and veggie? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. He goes, yeah, well, you messed up the entire stock. <laughs> now, thankfully, he showed me grace that day and gave me another chance. But church, have you ever wanted to do something really, really well, but turns out you had no idea what you were doing. Well, this is how our prayer life can be sometimes, but thankfully there's a moment in the Bible where Jesus gives us a brilliant example of how to actually build a strong habit of prayer. Now let's take a look at it in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, what I love about this verse is that it isn't just a verse that encourages us to pray and spend time with God, but we actually see Jesus give us an example of how to do it. Now, there's a couple of practical things that Jesus does here that I think we can really learn from this morning. The first thing Jesus did is that he actually got up and got started. He actually began the process. Now, I don't know about you, but I am guilty of procrastination. Whether it's an assignment, whether it's a conversation or a task, I will always leave things till the very last minute, except this five-minute message. <laughs> but when I actually start the process, I get into a productive mindset, and I get the task done way easier and better than I thought I would. And it's the same process when it comes to prayer. Like any habit is difficult to start, let's be honest. But if there's any habit worth growing as a Christian, it's the habit of consistent prayer. So here's the challenge. In order to build this habit of prayer, we need to measure the win correctly. Now, the win isn't that you prayed for a long time. The win isn't that you met every prayer need that came your way. The win is that you did something consistently. So the first step in order to building a strong habit of prayer is to simply get up and get started. Now, the next thing Jesus did after getting up is he left the house. And by this, I mean he left behind all the distractions and sense of comfort behind him. Now, I'm sure that in the last year, we've all experienced what it's like to work from home. And who knows that when working from home, we're slightly more inclined to fall into distraction, whether that's your kids, whether that's the chores around the house, or whether that's simply just taking a break, which really means laying in your bed for an hour with your eyes closed. <laughs> But this happens because we were surrounded by distractions. And although we didn't really have a choice because of the lockdowns, we can see why Jesus would have left the house. It's because when he did, he removed these distractions so that he could be fully present and focused when he prayed to God. Now, remember, prayer isn't a wish list. It's a conversation. Right? Anyone can yell among the noise, but it can be pretty difficult to hear the response. So prayer then is just as much about listening as it is about speaking. Now, it might not be super realistic for you to actually leave your house, but even having a designated space in your home where those distractions aren't around can really help you build this habit of prayer. And the third and potentially most important thing Jesus did was that he moved to a solitary place. Now, in this instance, he may have gone to a physical location, yes, but there's something to be said about being mentally focused before God. 
think of it like how you would study for an exam, right? You'd remove all the distractions, you'd set up your desk nice and tidy, but you'd still lack the focus to actually study. You'd end up on a YouTube rabbit hole or something, right? You remove all these distractions, yet you still can't seem to focus on the task at hand. It's because you haven't made yourself available to the task at hand. And it's the same with prayer. It's about approaching prayer as part of our relationship with God rather than one of the many tasks that we need to get done. It's like when you're having a conversation with someone and they may be there physically, but you fully know they conked out five minutes ago and they're not listening to a word you're saying. It's like that with prayer. It doesn't matter if we get up or if we find a place. If we're not present with God, our time with him lacks intimacy and meaning. Jesus was extremely intentional in all that he did, and he is our best example. And if this is how he approached prayer, then we have to believe that it's good for us to approach it this way too. See, prayer is one of the biggest tools that God's given us, and it's our job to develop this habit by using these practical steps. To get up and get started, to leave the distractions behind and have a designated space, and to be fully determined, to be fully present, so that we can hear what God is saying us. God bless you, church. Now, I'm wondering who here feels like they're lacking something. What are you lacking? Maybe some of us are lacking time. Anyone? Yeah. It often feels like there are not enough hours in the day. And who here is lacking sleep? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of us can agree, and I'm sure the young parents especially. Um, It's interesting, right? Because we all seem to be hyper-aware of what we're lacking. And I am. But in the Bible, David says in Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Which indicates that we actually already have everything we need. But what would happen if we took a step back and let God do the work? Let's be honest, it's hard. For me, the last couple of weeks hasn't been easy either, but God's put it on my heart to reflect on this idea of rest. Right from the beginning of time, God was talking about the idea of rest. In Genesis 2 verse 3, when he was creating the world, it says, Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. God didn't even need to rest, but he did. He set an example for all of us. He's telling us that we also need to rest. Let's dive further into Psalm 23 verses 1 to 3. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Now, David, who wrote this, referred to God as a shepherd, which was a personal way of referring to him, because David himself, he used to be a shepherd. So he knew just how much shepherds care for their sheep. And so when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, and I am a shepherd and I care for my sheep, then the Lord must care for me. And if the Lord cares for us, he knows what we need. He knows we need rest. And so it's like your computer. If you own a computer, you want to take care of it. And you want to make sure it's working properly. And what happens when something goes wrong? The first solution is you try to restart it. So it stops, pauses, and then starts again. 
See, we're like our computers. We, when we burn out, we need to stop, pause, and then reset. So here in the verse when it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, what's interesting in the part that says, he makes me lie down, is that sheep don't actually lie down easily. Sheep won't lie down if they're afraid. They won't lie down if there's friction among the sheep. They won't lie down if they're worried about going hungry. Church, isn't that a lot like us? It can often feel difficult to truly rest for fear that we're not doing enough in our days to sustain us. But can I encourage you? It says, he leads me beside quiet waters. It's through God that we find true rest. It's in those quiet moments that he can speak volumes to our situations and to refresh our souls. But it may feel difficult to find those moments of rest in your week. But God commanded us to rest for a reason. In Exodus, when they were commanded to remember the Sabbath day, um, it meant that for six days the Israelites would work, and on the seventh day they would stop work. And this meant that the Israelites, they needed to have faith. They needed faith that God would work for them, that God would provide for them on those days that they wouldn't work. And then furthermore, in Leviticus, God commanded the Israelites to sow and harvest their fields for six years. And then on that seventh year, they would give the land a year of rest. And what's interesting about this is not only did the Israelites need faith that God would provide for them in that year, they would also, what would be interesting about the land is that it would be more fruitful in that year for the next six years. So having a, living a life of faith also means living a life of rest. Church, can I encourage you this week to have faith that God can do amazing things in those moments of rest? And it doesn't have to be conventional either. For me, I love to turn all music's, music and sounds off in my car when I'm driving on my long commute to the North Shore. And for you, it might be a quiet prayer on your lunch break or a nice peaceful walk on a Saturday afternoon. So this week, can you find ways to rest in God? church, I don't know about you, but I am someone who's pretty easily distracted, right? I have this story, a not so fond memory from a few years back, and I was walking to my bus stop, and um, as you guys know, in the city, there's always some sort of commotion going on in the streets, right? So I'm walking along, and I hear this honk, and so I have my head turned, and I'm like, are they honking at me? If they're not honking at me, I want to see who they're honking at, and I want to see what's going down. This wouldn't have been such a silly idea if I had stopped walking, but I hadn't stopped walking, and I was looking there, I wasn't looking where I was going, before I know it, I turned my head back, smack bang, straight into a pole. It was straight out of a cartoon. I do a 360 degree turn, there were stars circling my head, I, it sure felt like it. I should have been focusing of what was, I should have been focusing on what was right in front of me. Sometimes God has placed something right in front of us. And because of comparison and because of um, distraction, we are taken away from the true joys and blessings of what God has given us right there in that moment. I get reminded of the story of the prodigal son found in Luke chapter 15. Okay, two, a father and two sons. 
One son gets a little bit restless and he wants to take his inheritance money early so he can have a good time out in the world. Unfortunately, this good time is not a long time. And before he knows it, he is broke and he is at rock bottom and he's in this pig pen and he's feeding these pigs and he's looking at their slop and he's like, man, this, this, this food looks good. I'm so hungry right now. I, um, maybe I'm going to take a bite. In that moment, he's reminded that even the servants in his father's house eat better than this right now. So he picks up his stuff, probably drops his ego right there and all his pride, and he makes his way back to his father's house. And you know what? He's making his way down the drive, and before he can even get to the house, the father races up to him. He has arms wide open. He embraces him. He clothes him. He feeds him, and they have a massive party to celebrate his returning home. And it's in that moment, you know, you see, he has it good. He has it good. We can sometimes be distracted. You know what I noticed in that story? Before the son left with his inheritance, he probably had a really sweet deal living in that house, right? He was probably fed really well. He probably had a room to sleep in and a, a nice bed to sleep on. And, and um, he probably had, uh, father had a plan to get his son involved in the family business. And so he could have a career and he was set up. He had it made. But he looked what was going on on the outside, and he was distracted. And he was distracted so much that he was pulled away from his father's house. You know what? Sometimes you've got to recognize the beauty of what God has already given us. Because he didn't know what he had there until it was gone. Church, I want to encourage us and urge us to be a people that are not easily distracted. And that we can go after what God has got in front of us. Let's return with purpose to the season that we are in. Sometimes we can lose sight that there's purpose where God has placed us right now and we can look at other people's lives, we can look at their homes, we can look at their jobs and it can seem more attractive to us. King David, way before he was a king, he was in the fields tending to the sheep but he was learning things there. He was being faithful with the small things. You know what? Wherever you've been placed right now, in a community, in a job, in a family, in a neighborhood, God has placed you there with a reason, and whether that reason is to bring all those people to Christ or just be a shining example of what it is to follow Jesus, there's purpose in that season. And church, let's pair that purpose with a posture of gratitude. This was huge for me um, when I started serving um, under Frosty way back in Botany. Um, we were, there was a leaders meeting one time, and I can't remember the exact topic. Um, I think Frosty was telling off the leaders for being a bit slack during setup, and it wasn't to do with me. I can just show you that, all right? Um, but I remember these words, and it was, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. I don't have to vacuum this floor. I get to vacuum this floor. I don't have to do this job. I get to do this job. It's about approaching every little thing that God's placed in front of us with a posture of gratitude. Church, if we can nail these two things, realizing our purpose and having a posture of gratitude, I believe distraction will have no hold on us and we can go after everything God has called us to. I'm so excited to share with you today what God's been teaching me about. What we see isn't the same as what God sees. Where we see weakness, he sees strength. Where we see obstacles, he sees opportunities. If we take a look at 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7, we see Paul say, Therefore, 
In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, this wasn't a prick of a little rose thorn. The Greek word used here was scallops, which is a sharp stake, painful. It's not exactly clear what this thorn in Paul's flesh was, but some commentators and teachers say that it was a spiritual harassment, some say a persecution, and others say that it was a physical or mental condition. The point is, Paul was suffering. And we see in verse 8, he pleads with the Lord three times to take it away from him. What happens when we feel weak, when we're going through a hard time? Often we'll run from it, resist it, try to do it in our own strength, or maybe even turn away from God altogether. What's interesting here with Paul is that God doesn't remove the thorn. But can I encourage you of what it goes on to say in verse 9 and 10, where God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe that? God's grace is enough. You see, what we see isn't always the same as what God sees. We so easily see the bad, our weakness, but God sees something that he can work with. You might see that empty bank account, but God sees that as an opportunity to fill it. You might see yourself as not being qualified enough for something like leading a small group, but God doesn't always need our abilities. He simply needs our availability. For me, I had a lot of doubt about speaking in front of everyone today, but God reminded me that this isn't about me but about what God has to say through me. Nothing is impossible for him, and he's on our side. And it's in our weakness that God is glorified. The thing is, though, we can't receive God's strength until we know our weakness. And that can actually feel really discouraging. But by looking through a faith lens, we can see the opportunity for God to fill something He can turn our obstacles into opportunities. He can turn our weakness into our strength. And this also requires us to be obedient and actually ask God what his will is for us in that area. It's this whole concept of more of God, but that means less of ourselves. If there's a scale of where our strength is coming from, and say we're at 90%, we're strong, that only allows 10% of God's strength to come through. But when we humble ourselves and we recognize that we're weak and say we're done at 10%, that allows God's strength to come through a whole lot more. I've been following along with the Bible recap this year and was reminded recently of the story of Gideon. We see God choose Gideon to lead Israel through this oppression that they're going through. Gideon, he's from the weakest clan in his tribe and the least important person in that clan, and God chose him. We see him set out for war with 32,000 men, and God tells him, no, that's too much. And we see his army go down to 300. And with no swords, just some jars, torches, and trumpets. 
and it ends in victory. Like, how good, how amazing is that? They didn't need what they thought they needed. It didn't make sense. But that's the amazing thing about God. The victories of God don't always make sense. I was reminded here that God decreased their army so that he could increase his glory. God wants glory from the miraculous, not the logical. So I just want to end with what Paul goes on to say in 13 verse 5. Put yourselves to the test and judge yourselves to find out whether you're living in faith. Surely you know that Christ Jesus is in you. I encourage you to reflect on where you're at. When you look at your weakness, what do you see? Do you see how much you lack? Or do you see how much room God can fill? Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here. You know, they say the uh, strongest runner races last. Eh? <laughs> but they got their money on the wrong horse this morning. These guys were fantastic, eh? And uh, they've set the bar high. And so if you just lower your expectation by about half, I think we'll be all right, okay? We'll get through this. And so um, let's just dive straight in because time is of the essence this morning. We're going to be looking at John 15, 1 to 8. It's up on the screen. Just follow it with me. It says this, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. And so we're going to be talking this morning about bearing fruit and how that's connected to faith. And, uh, and I think what we've first got to focus on this morning is what is fruit? Like, what are we actually thinking about here, right? And I think we can look at the Bible to consider that. And I think the Bible tells us uh, fruit of the Spirit, right? It talks about that in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, gentleness, self-control, nailed it. Um, and, uh, and, and I think we're also talking about, like, people being added to the kingdom of God, right? And so fruit, we've got um, fruit of the Spirit and people being added to the kingdom. And what I notice about this piece of Scripture is the correlation between three things, faith, connection, and fruit. And what really stirs in me when I read this passage is the reality that if you don't remain in Him and therefore don't produce fruit, you wither or, or you become disconnected from the vine, disconnected from Christ. And that tells me that someone can come into the church and they can re repent and they can commit their life to Christ, but if they don't remain in Him, if they don't remain connected to Him, they may be condemned in the end. And what do I mean by that? I mean like judgment, right? It talks about that through the Bible. It says that in Galatians and 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians and Matthew and Romans, to name a few. It talks about us giving an account for our actions. But hear me on this this morning. We're not saved by works. In no way am I instigating that at all. Okay, we are saved by faith and thank God for the glorious free gift of salvation, right? But notice that if you bear fruit, and if you take one thing away from today, may it be this, that if you bear fruit, it is simply because you are connected to the vine. Simply because you are connected to Christ. It's all about connection, church. And, and faith and connection together equals relationship. And our relationship with God, it should 
impart fruit. And if it if it doesn't, it indicates that something is wrong. And this, you know, this, this analogy of fruit, it's, it's so good. Maybe you're not getting the nourishment from the vine. You know, if you've got a plum tree and it doesn't produce fruit, it's not productive. And I say that with a bit of tenacity because I've got one of those at home. <laughs> Fruit's not something that, that, that you can buy unless it's already been cultivated. You can't manufacture it. It, 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 it happens naturally. And that analogy shows us that it's not salvation by works. It's not something that you can produce or earn or buy or, or manufacture. It comes from within. It's this, this natural growth process, right? And, uh, you know, some people, they misunderstand James. Uh, Paul actually, he writes in Ephesians 2, he says that we're not safe, saved by uh, works. We're, we're saved by faith. And then, uh, and then James writes in James 2, well, you say you have faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. And, and I'm paraphrasing there, right? But um, you sort of look at those two passages and you're like, well, these guys have got a bit of tension, contradicting each other here. But actually, James isn't contradicting Paul. He's just saying the kind of faith that saves you is the kind of faith that produces results, that produces fruit, right? And so if you never see any results, then you've, you've got to go and check your faith. You've, you've, you've got to check your relationship. I'm just going to invite the band up as I draw to a close, get those spirit keys humming. And, uh, you, you know, if I, if I told you this morning that this, uh, this building was about to go up in flames, come to think of it, probably not the best example. But if I told you that this morning and you guys believe me, you'd run for the closest exit, right? If I told you this morning that there was a speed camera just around the corner from church and you guys believed me, you'd probably drive a bit slower on your way home or take a different route if you've got a heavy foot like I do. If I, if I, if I told my daughter standing on a ledge uh, to, to jump into my arms because I'll catch her and she believes me, she'll do it. And you see, see faith, it should result in action, right? And, and these, are, these are silly little examples, but, but faith that is, is, is merely sort of intellectual in nature is, is worthless. It's worthless to us. And if I told you this morning, if you were dying and I told you that I knew a guy who could save you and you believed me, you'd do everything in your power to meet him. And, uh, and for some of you, that's, that's what I want to tell you this morning is that I know someone who can save you. I know someone who can, who can truly save you this morning. I want to close this morning by reading this passage in James 2. I think it's brilliant. It says this. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's a dead faith. And my question for you this morning, church, is what is the condition of your faith? What is the condition of your relationship? We were designed to be connected to Jesus, to stay connected to the source, to be in relationship and not separate. And when we're connected, we bear fruit. And maybe for you, practically, that means uh, spending more time with God, reading your Bible more, perhaps getting to church more frequently, joining a life group. I don't know, there's, 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 there's plenty of ways that this church is, is really good at supporting people to connect with Christ, but it's a decision that you have to make for yourself.